Welcome to The Syndicate, the podcast about the investors behind the overnight successes. It takes years, it takes money. On this show, we interview the top angel investors, venture capitalists, and startups to share what it really takes to succeed with startup investing. I'm your host, Matt Ward, and I'm a serial entrepreneur and angel investor. And I believe startups are the future, and angel investing is the best way to build real true wealth. To find out more about us and join our syndicate on AngelList, please visit thesyndicate.vc. But now, let's get on with the show. Let's start to get this kicked off and introduce our awesome panel. So we've got four panelists, as you can see. It looks like we got Dennis back. We got Dennis Mortensen, the founder, the one and only of X.AI. He sets up meetings and runs autonomous, pretty effective startup. I think you guys are scaling very, very quickly. We'll ask him a little bit more about that in the future. And when it comes to founders, we got Pratik Joshi. I hope I'm saying that right. Is that right, Pratik? Yeah, that's uh, Joe, uh, but yeah, Pratik Joshi. Pratik Joshi. It's okay. I'm terrible with names. I'm really sorry about that. Pratik is another really accomplished AI researcher. I think you've written eight books on the subject so far and uh, a pretty promising startup to boot. Yeah. And then Clara Brenner, we've got a venture capitalist here. She's investing in the future of cities, what it looks like, and changing innovation with Urban Innovation Fund. And last but certainly not least, we got the other guy with the beard, Zach Coelius. Zach's an angel investor. He invested in cruise automation. If you didn't know, they sold for a billion dollars to GM. Zach did okay. The company's doing great. And Zach is someone that I think is a pretty forward-thinking person. So I wanted to get everybody on the program, share some interesting insights. If you guys don't know, we'll just do a little bit of admin, and then we'll jump into the chat. So my name's Matt Ward. I run the syndicate. The syndicate's both an investment vehicle where we pool together groups of angel investors to invest in companies. And then we also get interesting people like our guests here and our podcast series where we interview some of the top angels, VCs around the globe to share their stories. We had Zach on. Zach's a pretty interesting guy. So Zach, let's jump into that. Tell me a little bit more about you. How did you get into this? And then we'll kind of start digging deeper. How'd you get into this? How'd you meet Cruz? What's your story? Uh, so I'm a, I like to say I'm a washed up entrepreneur now. I spent the last 20 years starting companies, uh, four different companies. The last one was a company called Trigget, which was an ad tech company. We started that in 2005 and sold it in 2015. And after we got out of that, I decided to take a break for a while from the real work of being an entrepreneur because it's a much harder job than what I do now. And uh, so I started looking for companies to give money to and investing and got lucky enough that Kyle was an old friend of mine. So when Cruise was first getting started, I you know heard about what was going on and jumped on board and got lucky that it exited very quickly thereafter. So mostly just been very lucky. 20 years. How old are you? You look pretty young, dude. <laughs> I started when I was 16. Ah, very good. Very good. Any other early starters? I am, what, 23 years in now, but obviously a little bit older. So I'm 45. So I started right out of college. Not bad, not bad. I think you're doing pretty well, even though that is kind of senior citizen age for the tech industry. <laughs> but uh, I think you've had some up and downs and you've done really well. What are you working on now, Dennis? So I spent the last four years of my life trying to kind of bring this intelligent agent, Amy, to life so that we can get two people together over email. So the idea of having at least enough intelligence and reasoning to schedule on your behalf and it's one of those things that sounds kind of simple when you mull it over and you have a dial code and you go to the whiteboard. I said, that seems solvable, like a weekend hackathon or three months in Palo Alto until you start working on it. And then you figure out, shit, humans are crazy. And I need to kind of live in that environment and deal with it. So we spent first three years on core R&D and have just started to kind of commercialize our scheduling agents uh, this year, actually. And Pratik, you are really hard in R&D. What's, what's your background? Yeah, uh, my field of expertise, as you mentioned, is the artificial intelligence. That's, that's all I've ever done. So uh, I don't know anything else. But uh, so with, with Uno, what we are trying to do is, you know, there are more than 150,000 water plants in the U.S., like treatment plants and, and facilities. And this industry faces enormous challenges, like, uh, you know, Excess energy consumption, water loss, financial situation is not good because they have to run these plants under very tight constraints. And so we thought, 
after spending a lot of time with these operators, I thought this expertise at artificial intelligence can be applied very effectively to solve some of these problems. And that's when that's how we got started. And I used to work on you know things like um, image recognition, uh, sensor data analysis. I also worked on self-driving cars. That that's the image recognition part of it. And uh, I realized that you know I, you know as you think about where AI can be applied, thought water like um, it, it drew me in as at the more the, as as I spent more time uh, in this industry, and that's where we are today. Sounds like you should talk to Clara. <laughs> We've talked before. Yeah. Oh, interesting. A, a reunion. Yeah. <laughs> what do you do, Clara? Uh, we invest in startups that are shaping the future of cities. So uh, at the Urban Innovation Fund, we're a pre-seed and seed stage funder. We're typically writing checks somewhere between 100 and 500K into really early stage businesses working on challenges like transportation or the future of work, finance, or maybe early childhood education. And so we, we obviously see a lot of companies in both the autonomous space and just generally uh, applying machine learning and AI. So like recently, we just invested in a company called Udelve, uh, which is still in stealth mode, but essentially they're um, an autonomous driving company based here in the Bay Area that will be launching publicly in January. So it's definitely, uh, this is definitely a topic that we think a lot about in the office. Autonomous is fascinating. And that's, that's the core of what we're talking about today, AI autonomous and how that affects cities. So who wants to who wants to make a bold prediction? No pressure. Predictions are the worst because you'll make one and it sounds somewhat clever in the moment. <laughs> then you forget it three years later on YouTube. Somebody will kind of play that prediction back to you and you look like a retard. <laughs> and there's just a very fine line between being clever today and not as smart in three years from now and anything to do with I think fully autonomous vehicles is just so difficult, right? For where it seems like we're so close. And it's not that I'm working on any of the technology within the space. I'm really just trying to get two people together, and that's hard enough as is. But it seems like we're so close. But with plenty of technology, even uh, what we've been working on, and we're a reasonable team, right? We're about 150 people. We spent four years just trying to make a fully autonomous agent that can schedule meetings. So I can only imagine the amount of effort you need to apply to a fully autonomous car for where any wrong prediction have kind of dramatic negative outcomes. But even when you're close, like any other R&D, the first 95% are somewhat easy. The last 5% might not never happen, right? And that's when you say, oh, in... uh, Six years, when my youngest daughter go to college, she probably won't need a driver's license. And that sounds like sensible. I don't sound crazy when I say that out loud. But in six years on YouTube, when you play it out and we're still 20 years from it, it sounds crazy. Yeah. And and so uh, in in the field of autonomous self-driving cars, it's not just the accuracy of the technology that's at play here because there's regulation, there is the trust that people need to develop. It's not just, as, as opposed to say clouds, for example, 20 years ago, building a cloud-based startup or just launching a cloud-based product, it's like a million, you need a million dollars, but now you can do it with a couple of hundred bucks. So if you look at any new technology that wants to come out, the first decade is spent on just making the soft, making the technology better and commoditizing it. And the next decade is spent on getting people to accept it and use it. So for example, 10 years ago, the number of people who trusted a third-party provider to host their entire product on was much lower. <laughs> and today you can just launch AWS or Google. You just trust them blindly. You, you think, okay, my product is going to be online 24-7 all the time. I trust them blindly. To get to that place in autonomous cars, you need to quickly commoditize. And I think that's the phase we are in. Like back when we launched DARPA 2004, right? 2004, 2005, uh, the last decade was spent on just developing technology. The next decade will be spent on just building trust and, and just getting people to accept that this is the new norm. I think Talk Ratik makes a really interesting comment, actually. I mean, obviously, I think saying the technology is there is, is not necessarily true, but I think the biggest challenge that the space faces is really just around measuring public temperature. You know, like the question of 
how safe is safe enough is something we hear a lot from regulators who are working with our companies. So I think AAA had a poll recently that said that 54% of drivers feel less safe if they knew that they were sharing the road with a fully autonomous vehicle. And at the same time, you know, 94% of crashes are caused by human error. So there's clearly a discrepancy there. And, you know, clearly there's an opportunity for technology to step in and, and lend a level of safety that we've never had before in this space. But so much of this is a challenge of perception because like if one autonomous vehicle crashes in the US, that's front page news. At the same time, you know, there are tens of hundreds of, of crashes that happen just in the Bay Area alone every day. And so I think reconciling that is, is a huge challenge that the industry has to face. Does that mean China will kill everyone else when it comes to autonomous because they'll just implement it and you don't have a choice? It probably won't be China. It's, it's more likely to happen in a smaller, more dictatorial country or a country where they have tighter government control but don't have the, quite the level of complexity that you have in China. So you know, a number of the countries in the Middle East are looking to, to move forward. Uh, there's, you know, Singapore certainly is in a good position to do it quickly. Um, it'll probably be a smaller constrained problem to start with in terms of adoption, at least the way I'm seeing the market unfold. Today, who would ride in a fully autonomous car without their hands on the wheels? I've done it. Yeah. Would you close your eyes? <laughs> no. Okay. So we're definitely getting there. I haven't done it that. It's one of those things where it's like, I feel like it's kind of like skydiving in a way where you got to do it once to realize you're going to make it. But at the same time, how do you get over that fear factor? If, if AWS goes down, sure, the internet dies, but it's not like my son's getting in a car crash. I remember the first time we visited a company that had a fully autonomous product and we actually had our associate go into the vehicle first and we kind of drove behind tracking. And it occurred to me while it was happening, I was like, oh God, like, have I just sent her to her death? You know, like I have no idea what's going to happen here. Luckily, they were only going very slowly. So it was fine. But it was definitely something that occurred to me afterwards. Like maybe I should have put my own life at risk first. Sounds like the poison testers. You you eat my food before I do. She wanted to do it. Like she was, she was the one that volunteered. But I, afterwards, I was like, next time I, I should do it, not you. I'd, I'd actually take kind of a, like a, a different approach to this question. I think if you look at the adoption of Tesla self-driving when it first came out, when it was clearly very dangerous, like people just grabbed it and ran with it and were using it in all sorts of ways that were very, very unsafe. So I think actually as self-driving comes out, you're going to see a rapid adoption across the early adopter community. Very, very quickly. I think like the fear mongering around this is, is mostly just fear mongering. It's easy to write about it. It's easy to get clicks on this subject. But there's a lot of people who are pretty good with math and, and who can recognize how, how easy it is to, to see how safe a self-driving car is. I think you'll have pretty quick early adoption. I think there's a bunch of people who will never adopt it and that they'll you know, continue to do stupid things in all sorts of walks of life. But um, I think there will be pretty rapid early adoption in this once it comes out. Will that be legal to not adopt it? Uh, eventually, no. Absolutely not. I mean, 30,000 people a year are killed by human stupidity. There's no way we can let that con- to continue to happen. Like, at some point, it will be illegal for humans to drive cars on regulated roads. No question. Any predictions on timelines or when 50% of cars are driverless? Come on, we're going to do something. I mean, come on, these predictions are dumb, right? I mean, there's so many moving pieces here. There's no way that a prediction is, is a, a good thing to, to, to throw out. I mean, it's happening very, very quickly. There's a cascade happening. There's an investment cascade happening. There's technological cascades happening. It will probably happen faster than most people are prepared to anticipate, but slower than those of us who are crazy optimists would believe it would happen. But it, it's happening. And when, you know, it's hard to know. You add the human factors around regulations, that, you know, that, that are harder to predict. And yeah, yeah, I'm not going to throw out a prediction. Okay, fair enough. Thoughts on, thoughts on the implications for jobs? I mean, you know, why would we have truck drivers when trucks can drive themselves? That's a lot of jobs. A lot. It's like 30% in the U.S., isn't it? No, that's not right. If you combine taxi and cabs and delivery. I still don't think that's fully correct. I think truck drivers alone, some study in Bloomberg suggested around 5 to 6%. But even if we are in the 5 to 6 plus occupations along that line and we get to seven, eight, nine percent, that is a dramatic number. I'm just not so sure I buy into any one of those doomsday scenarios for where we blink and we have 30 million people unemployed because of some new technology. As in, 
it seems so easy to me to surrender to the idea that we can't come up with anything new, as in we as humans just gave up, as in we have no more innovation left in us. And there was that. There was one in a, kind of innovation that came along and we gave up. There's just no either past data or history or sentiment really that suggests that will be the case. And as long as you can at least sign up to the idea that it can become worse than you think that pendulum can swing, then you also signed up to the possibility at least that it can swing to the other side, that for all we know, it could create more jobs or help. You can become a a semi-socialist like me, given I'm Scandinavian, and we'll just work 40 hours a week. You know, how wonderful would that be, uh, said the entrepreneur. But there's suddenly the idea that that pendulum can swing to both sides. And I'm just way more optimistic that it's going to swing to the other side. And I know that sounds naive or highly biased because here's a guy who wants his startup to succeed. But I'm just not convinced that lazy people who's got no ideas for what could happen with this positive technology just lets on to the worst case scenarios instead of perhaps walking to the whiteboard and trying to figure out if these things disappear, what things will arrive then? That obviously takes real energy and uh, you'll have to kind of take a chance and making a suggestion for where you might sound silly, but that is as likely, if not more likely, at least in my opinion. Yeah, I, know. I, don't know. I, mean, I think that there are obviously lots of really fantastic potential new professional opportunities for low and middle skilled people in the future. But pretending that there aren't near term frictions that can be extremely problematic is just is silly. Like this is a big challenge. And one of the reasons I think that local governments and state governments and the federal government have been so concerned about these new technologies is not that they don't recognize that there isn't value, ultimately value that's that's worth embracing, but that negotiating that transition is going to be really hard. And frankly, like the, none of us participating in this discussion are the people who are going to be most deeply affected by that. And so I think a real challenge and a growth opportunity for this space is sort of being a little bit more thoughtful about the way in which we talk about this transition. Of course, like when Lyft and Uber started, like nobody, I think, really anticipated the fact that they were going to open up a whole new category of flexible professional opportunities that frankly are really exciting. Um, But of course, they have their downsides. And, you know, if Lyft and Uber move to fully autonomous business models, and then we're going to have a problem all over again. I just, I think that we as an industry have a perception problem. And so like talking about it in a very cavalier manner just hurts us. Like there's no problem in acknowledging like there could be some challenges. It doesn't mean they're not surmountable, but I think being honest about that would help us look a lot less arrogant to the people who are not necessarily the early adopters. Basically, you don't want to look like Zuckerberg. (laughs) It depends on what you get in return. But that aside, I'm just not sure that there's anything unique about this moment in time that justifies a new level of alertness for where... I totally agree with you, but I think that's actually not true. Like, if you think about the broad-based economic dislocation that will happen as robotics is adopted across almost every industry on the planet, and the speed of that the cycle, I mean, it's growing so quickly. I don't think you can look historically at, you know any sort of technological economic dislocation that happened that quickly and that broad based, like you certainly see industries that are affected, you know, as new innovations drive out jobs and the Luddite will always be there. But like, I I think it's correct that it's like super scary and the short term dislocations are bad because of that broad base and because of that speed, even though I totally agree with you. Like if it, if it if it's true that this happens and we suddenly get all these jobs removed, then we don't have to work anymore. Like I mean, if we can replace all industry and all production of goods, and you know, no more, you know, we don't need people to work anymore. We have to change our system, but it will be that'd be pretty exciting not to have to As with sit there and uh, wave, right? So, for example, to take a very glaring, obvious example, um, you know, the industrial revolution. It's it's like a lot of jobs became obsolete, right? But if you look back, but and, and at that point, yeah. people actually raised hell. Like they were looting. People just went crazy. And there was a period of time, as Clara mentioned, a lot of uncertainty, a lot of people were unhappy. But now, if you look back over the last you know, 100, 200 years, where we are versus where we were, right? It, it's, it's, there are so many new jobs created and the same people who would have worked uh, on a very manual. So they learned or rather like they moved to a newer professions and not it's not just that it's it's safer it's better for them they'll work less hours for more money so it's 
it's good for people. So the thing is, the people, I think as, as people who are developing this technology, we have a certain responsibility, right? For example, when somebody says, oh, that's not good for you, they, we have the ability to think it through because we have seen the cycles, right? So we, it's our responsibility to make sure that even though it looks bad now, five years from now, 10 years from now, there'll be so many more new jobs that it's going gonna, it's gonna to kind of compensate for that in, in, in a very fair Look, manner. The industrial economy is safer because we put in place regulations around things like the eight-hour workday, paid family leave, insurance. Like these innovations have to come with complementary interventions from the community, from government to ensure that the ramifications are net positive as opposed to negative. And so like, of course, the industrial revolution was a net good thing. But the reason we can say that the jobs are better and safer is not because those early machine factories were safe, but because a lot of people died and we had to put in place some reasonable responses to ensure that people participating in those industries were okay. And so I think, of course, these technological innovations are exciting, they are important, and they will absolutely shape the future of all of our jobs. But pretending that there isn't some negative externality that could arise that needs to be managed is just naive. Uh, to add one more point to that, so I, I grew up in India in the 90s, and uh, back then we used to have these uh, like human-driven tricycles. Like To get a person from point A to point B, there's a human who's actually driving it like a like a bicycle and to get and the thing is that looked to me very harsh uh, the, the toll it takes on a human body to do that all day every day and and these people they live from day to day meaning if you are sick today that's it there's no food for you because they don't have wages and now when auto rickshaws and the, the, the automobiles they became more popular the same people learned how to drive the, the three-wheeled automobile. That's called auto rickshaw in India. And it changed their lives. Number one, it's safer. It doesn't take a toll on their body. And it's just, it's much better livelihood. So it's more like the shift took time because the people who owned the, the manual, the tricycle, they couldn't immediately jump to it. But over the next five or 10 years now, it's just, uh, it's just better for everybody. At least that's how that transition turned out. Speaking of ownership, who will own cars in the future? Is it a fleet-based model? And we talked Uber and Lyft a little bit. What happens when Uber or Lyft has to own their cars? If it's driverless, either Uber's owning the cars, they're leasing them from someone, or they're leasing them from their drivers. Either way, the cost basis changes. What's the future look like? It doesn't make sense to own a car. Personally, individuals, like it's all fleets. City-based or, or private? In each city. But you can have different fleets that have different that service different functions. So you can have basically, for instance, now that you no longer have stoplights or speed limits, you know, it'd be just as easy to get in a car and drive to Los Angeles as fly. You know, you can, you know, and so there will be probably fleets that serve very specialized functions, construction fleets, fleets for long distance travel. You'll probably have little pods, individual cars that you just get in just by yourself to go a short distance. You can have, you know, cars that basically are for having meetings in. I mean, you, you could probably have like a, a whole bunch of different types of fleets that serve different purposes, whether they're owned by the same company or if they're owned by individual companies remains to be seen. But I mean, just from a utilization perspective, you know, 80, 90% of the automobiles we have just sit around all day. There's no reason to do that. So having a fleet that can be used by many people makes a ton more sense. There's just, and you know, not to mention in the short term, the cost of the hardware to basically make these things autonomous is prohibitive if you're only using them 10% of the time, but they suddenly becomes easier to manage if you have, you know, much higher utilization rates. And that stat corresponds to uh, the study where they say that each uh, self-driving like, car fleet corresponds to six to ten privately owned cars. So the number of cars will drastically reduce. And also, uh, fleet makes more sense also because the adoption can be controlled because this company owns the fleet of cars, so they can control how they deploy it. And once they have enough data that they run smoothly, then consumers can actually embrace it without fear of you know, accidents and so on and so forth. And I think just in general, there'll be a mass opportunity for network optimization that you just can't do if you run as single individuals. So having a network of vehicles and things you can do within a certain territory is just very different to me having a reasonably intelligent car on my own. So very much on the same page, I just can't imagine my kids ever buying a car. 
I said, it just doesn't make any sense. What's that mean for cities and all the parking space that's going to get freed up? They're gone. You're one of the best trade ever. You basically, it turns out that um, parking garages have a special long-term debt structure that you could basically buy default swaps against. All those parking garages in 20 years are gone. So you can buy, like, you, you can literally go out and buy credit default swaps against a parking garage debt uh, at pennies on the dollar right now because it, it trades at such a flat rate. There's very low volatility. In 20 years, every parking garage we know of will no, will no longer exist. I've heard that before, but at the same time, I've talked to a number of developers who have emphasized that actually retrofitting or demolishing parking garages are extremely expensive, if not impossible (laughs) to do that sort of retrofitting. And so I think uh, recognizing that, no doubt, like if we don't need to park, like why keep them? But it it will be a tremendous cost, not only to the individual landowners, but like the surrounding community to deal with that. That. Yeah, that's why I'm saying buy credit default swaps against those properties and their owners. Like, go short parking garages. Who thought we'd talk about shorting parking garages? That's that's <laughs> interesting. What's what's all the space get used for? And it seems like we're in the era of super cities, where cities are getting to the point where they're arguably becoming more powerful than countries. Thoughts? I mean, I think it's less a question of what they'll be used for and more, how are you going to replace that capital? I mean, our cities rely on traffic tickets and parking meter, you know, payments to to fund so much of their operations. And it's not just cities. Think about airports. I think airports and convention centers derive, you know, a huge percentage of their revenue actually from the parking. And so figuring out how to kind of step in with some other alternative revenue model is, is going to be really important. And we hear all these different like kooky, not necessarily kooky. I don't want to diminish them, but like really creative ideas get pitched to us all the time, like dynamically pricing roads, for example, because they're going to lose a lot of money. Where does all the money go? And where's the money go on the investment side? You mean, where does the money going now that's going to cities and airports? Where, I don't know exactly what I meant with that question, but where is the money going to go in the future in terms of investments into startups focused on mobility, focused on fleet, software, automation, hardware? What are you guys investing in? What do you guys see? We get pitched on a lot of sidewalk robots. I'm not sure. We haven't necessarily found the right one for us, but I definitely think in the near term, uh, autonomous businesses that don't necessarily ferry passengers is a great sort of near-term investment opportunity. They're much more likely to come to market in the very short term. And so we've been seeing a lot of activity in that space. Like Hyperloop? Like Hyperloop, but also like, uh, you know, last mile delivery solutions, inter or intra-city, um, you know, like how do we get packages from San Francisco to LA or how do we deliver, you know, your Grubhub, whatever, meal from North Beach to Soma. Um, there's just so many potential applications specifically that avoid, I think, a lot of the concerns that people have about putting actual humans in fully autonomous vehicles. Interesting, interesting. So is this a winner-take-all market then in terms of autonomous vehicles or winner-take-most? I still believe there's so much value in the network and certainly in whatever data infrastructure you put in place that I find it unlikely that we'll see thousands of individual actors in this space. I think it's much more likely you'll see a concentration of a fewer set of actors. And I've, again, will find it almost impossible to believe that some new actor will arrive and inject themselves into this network once fully established. So I do think we'll end up with a few set of actors once we kind of get there. And also, I think uh, another point I want to add is about mapping, because um, the maps that we use today are like way, way further from what a self-driving car would need. So uh, the first, I think the first company to kind of own the fleet as well as the mapping solution, because that combination is important. I think that company will get to own the market. And also, unless a lot of these modules are commoditized, it's difficult for a startup to come in and just own the market. Maybe they can own a segment of it, but it, it's got to be a big company that can afford to deploy a fleet, can afford to build that really, really complicated maps, both urban and rural, like different conditions like snow, normal, winter, summer. There's so many conditions, right? And startups cannot afford that, right? And so that's why until it gets commoditized, it's just uh, you know, the first company to deploy a fleet and gather all the data 
they'll always have a big leg up or the next comer. So that's, that's what it's like today. Google yeah, Plus Lift? We clearly have come through like a cascade in this autonomous space. A couple of years ago, it was Google moving slowly and very little else. And there was some interesting startup opportunities that happened. And then, you know, very quickly thereafter, the rest of the automotive industry realized that this was a nonlinear shift that they had to spend to get positioned for. And, you know, now, you know, there's a lot of big players at the table and at least the core autonomous will be controlled by one of those big players. It's highly unlikely a startup will be able to emerge at this point for the core. There's lots of interesting niches, absolutely. And there's, you know, advancements in technology and that will be startups will bring to bear. But in terms of like core ownership, I think it's it's unlikely at this point that, that a startup will be able to, to, to win. Who would you guys put your money on? Way more. That's my bet. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty much the only data that's available. Nobody has shown uh, that much promise. So I guess we need more people doing this so that we can compare and contrast. But right now, it looks like Waymo is going to They have the capacity. They certainly have the deep learning chops. They have the money to deploy feeds. So it looks like... Um, and also within that, I think the transportation space is going to take a big leap. Like uh, you know, people who, as Clara mentioned, people who can move stuff non-human uh, uh, transport from point A to point B is going to be the first to come to market. And uh, and obviously, self-driving cars with people, that's the end of the holy grail. But uh, just to gather more data, I think companies like Waymo is going to, going to take it. Waymo's, Waymo and Google are partnered with Lyft now at this point, aren't they? That is correct. Yeah. Are you sure? Else. I'm not sure they know, actually, <laughs> because they've made multiple investments in lift like competitors you can pick name, but i wouldn't be so uh steadfast on them having partnered with one uh, unique actor i think they just see good investment opportunities and throw I money that's the one that they publicly announced but i'm sure you are right like that's the one that publicly came out mostly because both Raymo and lift are more in the public eye but i'm sure they have a bunch of partnerships i'm sure <laughs> they have to hedge their bets when voice kills search <laughs> <laughs> That will be an interesting, interesting disruption. What are you guys excited about today? Today, as in talking to you or today in the next 12 months? Take that as you will, but I don't think I'm that exciting. I think you're awesome. I am, you guys know exactly how it is to run a startup that you want to think about other things, but you also want to survive and you're hungry. So every day is just a fight for survival. So when I think about tomorrow, it's about how can I sell the next customer? How can I make another 20 bucks? How can I hire a new engineer? You know, that's my, what am I excited about? I might hire a new good data scientist next week. That's, you know, that's something I'm fucking excited about. But what I really, if I'm a little bit less uh, inwards looking here, I'm certainly excited about the fact that there might be some moment this Christmas for where the conversational UI will kind of potentially have some sort of inflection point where it becomes normal to talk to your computer. And I certainly can't, as a small startup-ish, go educate the market. So I need the Googles and the Amazons to kind of educate the market at large that it is normal to talk to your computer. And whatever skill you need to be able to do that comfortably is something for where you just pick that up. And as they educate the market on that, me kind of pushing my agents to market becomes slightly easier. And I do think that that slight push into the conversational UI, which is happening as we speak, might just change over the next kind of three weeks and over all of 2018 because pick, you know, X number of million devices will end up under that Christmas tree. Yeah. Voice or text? They're kind of the same. So I've, uh, in my opinion, at least, so... Any voice ends up being text almost uh, immediately. I think it's more the idea of utilizing natural language as an input syntax for compute, which sounds so easy that any five-year-old should be able to figure it out, which is just not the case. As in, I got multiple Alexa devices in my house. I got Katana. I got Siri. I got anything which you can talk to in my house. Whenever my wife talks to Alexa asking about the weather, she sounds like a robot, as in, what happened? You can just ask it about the weather in whatever funny accent you might have. Just ask it, but that is still not normal. And that's certainly something which I 
can imagine becoming normal over the next year. I saw a great website and their chatbot was named Pikachu and instantly <laughs> disarmed me from the fact of this isn't a person, this is a robot, it's totally cool. And I think I think making people more comfortable with things with autonomous vehicles, with AI, that's that's going to be one of the big drivers. What um what challenges do you guys see from mass adoption both on the autonomous side and then on a more specific AI side? I'll give you two things I worry about just in general. One is this potential inherent bias in the data sets we go create, which might just take the world which we have and amplify it. And if you think the world we have is wonderful, then you're okay. If you think the world we have is substandard, then you should be uh, slightly unhappy. So that's certainly one thing which I wouldn't say I worry about. I do hope that we can have this moment where we might just finally be able to program humans to be better people. And then also that the models we go create end up being not easy to explain so that a guy like me might have his mortgage decline, but we're really kind of somewhat unable to explain why I had that mortgage declined or that loan or that insurance, whatever it might be. So those are certainly two inflection points where now's the time to do proper design around that for all of us who's kind of in the industry. And uh, actually, there's a very uh, popular uh, professor, Andrew Eng, um, and of course, Sarah. He, he made a very rather popular statement that AI is the new electricity, right? And when electricity first came out, people were scared and afraid and it's going to kill people and all that. It's just, as, as, as you mentioned, it's just about, uh, can you explain it to people in a normal way? Like, if they understand exactly what it is, they'll not be not be scared of it. So, it's, uh, I think, yeah, it's just about getting the message across uh, to explain why. Like, if they knew that 88% of the people who drive today use their phones, right? And that's that's crazy. And this was apparently, the survey was conducted based on 570 million rides. And that's a staggering number. 88% people look at their phones when they drive. and And it's just like... It could be better than that. We can be, as, as collectively, we, we owe it to other people to be better than that. And I think it's just educating the people without using jargon. Like if I tell you, oh, deep neural nets and, you know, you know the, the tan edge layer, it's not, that's not the way to explain it to people. So I think it's just removing the jargon, building trust and explaining it and educating is, is, is a good way to go. All I heard was, you're going to get rid of my job. How do people do a better job of explaining that? Because the tech industry does a terrible job of explaining value and value creation. I mean, you can look at, you can look at some of the hearings we have now on Capitol Hill. Tech, yeah. Tech's under attack because we're destroying jobs. Whereas if you kind of look at net-net, it's definitely a net positive. But the, the story's not quite going the right way. Any thoughts, guys? Yeah, I mean, if you look at the... The numbers, it's just a lie, right? I mean, we have 4% unemployment. We have exponential growth in technologies. Like, where is this technology destroying jobs coming from? Like, you can make an argument that, like, you know, technology has certainly destroyed a substantial number of manufacturing jobs. But, you know, I, I, I think it's, like, I think it's difficult to respond to an argument that comes from the other side that isn't actually correct or nuanced. Like, how do you respond to that in a way... Like, yeah, we could come up with better propaganda and sloganeering about how technology is great. But like, if we get down to the real sort of conversation about like what's actually happening on the ground, then, you know, like where, where is this massive destruction of, of employment that we're seeing uh, with, you know, I mean, it's, it, it's someone needs to explain that in order for me to respond to it. But by that same token, Trump, Trump won. We need to purchase from a much more nuanced uh, I don't know, direction. Like it's not just about the number of people who are employed, but the quality of those jobs, the prospects for the future, the amount of student debt that they're able to handle appropriately and in a realistic time frame. So of course, like the tech industry generally is bringing us forward as a country and we need to do a better job of uh, supporting those industries at the same time, like just being like, look, we have jobs. It's cool. Your arguments don't make sense. I think is again, one of the reasons why we struggle to communicate with 
people on Capitol Hill, as well as people throughout the country, like it's very scary for a lot of individuals. And so like until we are able to sort of like empathetically acknowledge that, like we're never going to communicate and we're going to get stuck in the same problem that we're, we're currently in. Yeah, but, the, but the problem with that is, is that like the, the, the standard of living in this country, so the incomes that people make, the quality of their jobs is driven by productivity. So the production of the individual as an output of an hour worked, like base productivity, productivity simply only increases with basically investments in infrastructure, technology, or basically the tools that enable people to create more things. So technology at its core increases productivity. So it's like from an economic perspective, what, these arguments are not, they're not valid. Like, I think that the challenge is like no one's, I'm not arguing with you. I, I agree with you that like fundamentally we need access to these types of technologies and, you know, improvements in terms of productivity. I just think that they need to be complemented with some very specific interventions that make it possible for, you know, my nieces and nephews to get through college without like crippling levels of debt to be able to achieve those types of jobs That's that we want them to have. Of course, but I think realistically, as some of the most you know significant, powerful employers in the country, participating in that process is is important. And I think the the sort of the more we say like it's not our problem, like we're technologists, is just alienating to a lot of people. And and I do think we have a responsibility to participate in you know creating the jobs that we all want to have. And that doesn't mean just like being the actual employer, but also you know setting up the safety nets and policies that make it possible for people to live happy, not worried lives. Um, and so like, we're on the same page, like you and I, I think fundamentally agree. It's just like, I think we need to go beyond just saying like, we made a good job. It's, it's so much more than that. Dennis, as the Swedish guy, I want you to take this one because you guys have a very different system. So first of all, I'm Danish, but tomatoes model. I hear you. Scandinavian. I apologize. Good enough. So here's the, uh, here's the thing. I grew up in a system for where we have free healthcare for life. As in, I got born, I get a social security number, and to this day, if I get shot in the kidney, I just need to make it to JFK, do the six-hour flight, and somehow crawl off the flight, and I'm good. That, that is the ultimate insurance which I have. As in, there's nothing so bad happening on the streets in Manhattan where I'm not thinking, I just need to have my passport in my back pocket, and I'll make it. So it's very kind of alien to me to kind of even spend effort and energy in trying to understand why we put a system in place as we have. I get some of the arguments, but do you know when you don't want to get them, then it's like, sure, whatever. You do what you do, I do what I do then. So I just can't get to a point for where I can even listen to people who suggest that healthcare shouldn't be really just a basic need we provide to everybody is for me, it's just part of human decency. So I want to listen. I want to participate, but I very easily shut down. And I know that is just not what you're supposed to do, but I've just given up on that speaking with most of my kind of friends across the street here. Another thing is I have free education. So we actually have the opposite. So we get paid to go to school. I got paid about a thousand dollars a month. When I went to university, I said, you get a salary if you're willing to educate yourself. And walked out of school with you know, no debt because not even like I was unique. I said, I don't know a single friend of mine from back home who's in any debt. I said, we all had zero and we were not unique. It was just like, well, I guess we've done in university now. We should probably get some jobs. And those two basic needs for me, at least, are just so universal that it surprises me that any statistic for where you can prove that that is just a really bad system, I would listen. It just seems like we live longer, we spend less per citizen to keep them healthy. Any dimension you want to pick, it seems like it's probably a better system. If you want to save money, do that. If you want to live longer, do that. If you want to live happier lives, you should definitely do that. As in, I think the last four of the five years in The Economist, we were the happiest people in the world. I haven't been home the last 12, but nevertheless. So very different system, but I'm learning. So, you know, educate me. I'm willing to uh, listen. I think it's one of the most fascinating parts of this conversation is that like, if we, if we really believe that the robots are going to destroy all the jobs, then that means the robots are going to produce all the goods 
which means there's no reason why we can't just distribute them equally across the society and basically provide for a socialist system where your food, your housing, your healthcare, everything about your life can be provided by the robots. Like if you just extend this, the, 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 the direction that we all basically are assuming it's going to go anyway, Capitalism itself basically suddenly becomes a very interesting phenomenon because there will be no more need to work. So then why would people work? If the vast majority of people don't like their jobs, why would they do them if we can produce the goods at virtually no cost by robots? So, I, think I, mean, that's I think that's assuming that it goes in the direction that we want. Like, of course, it, it, we currently produce enough food, feed, food to feed everybody, but we're not feeding everybody. Like, there are some really important interventions that need to happen from, you know, people like uh, the people who are participating in this conversation. If you have, you know, a future vision that you want to implement, it's not just about not having to have or to have enough resources to support everybody, it's to distribute them in a way that makes sense. And so I think it's so important for people who are working on these technologies and who have a vision for the future, which involves like being able to get paid to go to college or not having crippling student debt, you know, when you leave, like you have to participate in this discussion because without it, like it's not, it's not going to happen. I don't think it's an inevitability. It it involves a tremendous amount of, of active participation. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, from somebody who grew up on the other half of the spectrum. So here, uh, right, so we are in India. The, one of the biggest problems we had, at least when I was growing up, was if you get, I mean, insurance was kind of. A, I know it's extremely common here, but uh, I, I know a bunch of people. Insurance was like I didn't even know what that was. Like uh, when I was a kid, like, you just go to a hospital, and if you get yourself in an accident, you have to pay the full fees, which means one serious accident and you're crippled with debt for the next 25 years because medical care is extremely expensive, especially in, in countries where it's not common. So the point is, uh, it, it's, it's in a country like India, where there's you know, too, so, so many people, the second largest population in the world, implementing a system like this takes a whole new meaning because number one, it's just not possible to deal with so many people and deploy it effectively, right? And, and that's when it becomes like, you have to pick and choose, and sometimes uh, things get left behind. And so it's, it's more about how do we uh, uh, ensure that, that uh, when you implement a system like this, everybody gets some benefit, or, or you can go the other way, where you say that, oh, people who are aware, they get all the benefits, the vast majority who don't know still continue to reel under this enormous problem. I was going to say, I think if you did the, the counter to all of our sort of sadness in the developing world or the developed world is if you look at the number of people that we've brought out of poverty over the last 20 years, I mean, it's an astronomical number. I mean, it's the, the, the graph is just like, it, it, like you think about like tens of millions of children whose lives are being changed by the globalization and technology. And it's just this, like at a global level, the most amazing thing that's ever happened in the history of humanity in terms of the, the distribution of goods to individuals and the enablement of people to live better lives. And so, you know, I, like, I think if we go kind of come back to this conversation a little bit, like part of me is just like, okay, fine, let's just point at that graph because that graph is amazing and it's going in the right direction. And like, yeah. You know, I think that the insurance question is a really interesting one. We've been seeing a ton of insurance innovation companies pitch us and I get it. Like, I think, you know, even specifically, you know, to bring it back to this topic at hand, which is, you know, the autonomous vehicles and AI, uh, we hear from entrepreneurs all the time, like they don't have the right insurance. They can't find it. You know, most commercial general liability doesn't even cover aviation at all. So like all the drone companies we talk to really struggle with this. And I think I read a study the other day from... Accenture, maybe that was saying that, you know, in the next 10 years, they predict about $81 billion in new insurance premiums that are going to come as a result of covering things like hardware, cybersecurity, software, all of these sort of elements that are necessary to kind of bring about the future that I think we all want to see. So like, even, you know, whether you feel good about it or not, I think there's a really tremendous business case to be made to kind of invest in this space, because there's so much money to be made if you can deliver something of value. But let's play the devil's advocate question. So there's two things in the U.S. specifically that have not got more cost-effective over time. <laughs> Education and healthcare. They've gotten exponentially more cost-prohibitive because they're very, very regulated. So a- as an example, my wife is Swiss. We were moving to the U.S. 
and we couldn't go because we didn't know that we would be able to 100% get health insurance. So because of that, she was pregnant and meant absolute no-go because of the costs. And for entrepreneurs as well, it's the same deal. Your, your health care comes through your job in the U.S., which is a terrible system, but it is what it is. But a lot of a lot of the trends in the U.S. have me particularly worried, especially when you see Europe, which, while it has its problems as well, seems to be more forward thinking with a lot of these. Is the U.S. going to be the future or will some of these struggles that are starting to trump themselves, uh, will that cause the, the country to have issues and innovation to head elsewhere? I can certainly imagine some penalty being applied for not being able to provide a basic level of healthcare to every single person who walks across the border. It just seems not sustainable. On the flip side, though, since I did become a citizen, so I shouldn't sit here and bitch because I signed up for it. I should uh, kind of try to figure out how to help. What provides me some kind of interesting comfort is that the education bubble, if you will, that we're in, I think is so unsustainable that the U.S. might actually be in a setting so poor that we finally figure out what is it that we're supposed to do around learning? So no parents, me included, I've got two teenage daughters sending the first to college next year. I'm not brave enough to say, hey, instead of doing uh, four or five years in Boston, you could also just do these four things online. As in, you're probably going to be able to learn the same things, be as smart, get the same amount of jobs. But I, I don't dare recommend my daughters do that. But there might be a setting if where nobody will be willing to be indebted for $200,000 to get some degree from some kind of mid-level school that they say, I think I will decide not to go to university. I think I'll actually just do this online and come out in four years having learned exactly the same thing. And I don't need that insurance that comes along with having a degree from some institution that you might be aware of. And that's why I think being really shitty at something might actually get you faster to the other side for things are slightly better. Zach, you have an interesting story on how you got here. What are your thoughts? Uh, I don't know. I just think of the hundreds of millions of children who don't have a chance to go to college right now, who basically can fire up a web browser and watch the best lecturers in the world and can learn the things that they need to learn. So, I mean, I, I spend probably a quarter of my year internationally just traveling around the world going to, to startup groups and meeting with people. And there's so much amazing innovation happening, you know, in the rest of the world that I'm actually not too concerned about this. I'm, I, I mean, let's let the U.S. with all of its, you know, self-loathing and, and politics and fighting, eh, who cares? Like the rest of the world is going to do some amazing stuff over the next decade as a result of what's happening in terms of education. Um, yeah, I'm not too worried about it. So I want to bring it back a little bit more to cities. We are seeing the buildup of cities. We're seeing a lot of changes happen. What does autonomous, what do some of the mobility changes and even AI have on the implication of cities, what they look like, where people start to live, how people interact and live? It can be awesome. <laughs> Thoughts, Claire? Maybe. <laughs> I mean, I think that the implications for the physical landscape are, are tremendous. Like you were talking about parking earlier, but I think they're... I think I've been reading a lot of urbanists say recently that there are big concerns about sprawl, that ultimately, like, if it's possible for you to, like, live in horse country outside of Washington, D.C. or in wine country here, you know, all of the people with the sort of resources and abilities to, you know, serve as leaders within their community and send their kids to good schools or public schools, you know, they're going to go elsewhere and there's going to be a sort of a flight risk. I think, you know, that or the other side is they're afraid that basically everyone who is rich enough is going to stay in the city and we're going to be able to essentially ship out all of the low and moderate income people to the sort of outer, outer rings of the community where we're essentially going to be stratified by, by income in a really negative way where it's like, fine, like we're just going to put you in your little autonomous van, you know, poor factory worker, and you're going to have to, it's going to take you two hours to get to work, but don't worry about it because we can do it from a logistics perspective. And so I think urban planners, I think are very concerned about economic stratification that comes from like, just because we can move people that far and that efficiently doesn't mean we should. 
Um, and I don't actually have a strong opinion about this, but I know it's something that I, I hear a lot from, from folks who are worried about those types of implications for, for autonomous vehicles. We were talking about Cape Town. That reminds me a lot of townships where you have the poor black workers in South Africa and South Africa had this apartheid. It started out as a good thing and ended as a very, very bad thing. But what it led to was you have all of the poor black people living outside of the city because the whites don't want them there. And then things got very, very controversial. Now people can't come back into the city because they can't afford it and they have the commute. What are thoughts on where people would head and how those ramifications would work out? You kind of talked about two possibilities, but do you think that would be something across the board or would that be on a per case basis? You know, I don't know. I mean, first, A, I don't think apartheid was ever a good thing. It started out as a bad thing and ended as a bad thing. But I think uh, from the way cities are structured, like it's as yet to be seen. I think a lot of it will have to do with regional policy. Like it depends upon like where cities elect to construct their affordable housing stock, for example. Um, I think they're, you know, it will depend upon the communities and the way in which they respond to these types of, of challenges. Interestingly, it started out not as you have to live here. It started out as you have your special culture and no one's allowed to do anything against that in this area. And then they kind of realized that they could manipulate that. It's, um, it, it's, a, it's a long story. But um, yeah, any, um, any thoughts that you guys have? Anything else you guys want to cover? We should end on a high note. So whatever question you have, find a positive one. So uh, we leave this smiling. That's the only request I have. Absolutely. When will you be able to go on a date with an artificial intelligence bot? That's what you've been working on, Dennis. That's seriously why you made Amy. The name's very cute, by the way. So we have Amy and Andrew, I would like to uh, underline. Here's the funny thing. Most men pick Amy. Most women pick Andrew, though. So I'll leave you with that. uh, Yeah, I'll pick you. There's probably a whole set of kind of obvious reasons for that. We could spend another half hour on that. On dates, I think that's kind of happening already, not for our particular product, but that whole Blade Runner scenario that we saw a good month ago when they launched that movie, isn't that happening already that we fall in love with these entities that aren't really real? I'm not sure we need to look 40 years into the future before that happens. I think some people have kind of made that happen already. And really, the agent on the other side of the screen, which you're sitting and chatting with for all intents and purposes, it might be a human today, but you don't really know. You fell in love with that avatar on Reddit, and you've been chatting with him or her or that dog for two years. Good for you, man. They had an article here in the newspaper about a a robotic... um a robotic pleasure time massage coffee shop that was quite interesting. Apparently, they are really working on these things, and it is starting to happen. It's very creepy. I uh, cannot part, recommend it. Part, uh, so, the deep, uh, deep neural nets have you know the quality of, of universality, which means that you can approximate given a function f of f x, you can appro- can very closely approximate it with, with the deep neural net, which means that you know as <laughs> as Dennis mentioned. If it's, if it's a date that you want where the responses you get are like a date, you can easily build that. And uh, that's some of the promises of deep learning, I guess. Uh, soulmate. <laughs> yeah. So I want to thank everybody for coming on today. I know everyone here is really busy. You guys are working on quite a bit of stuff. Where is the best place for everyone to reach out to you, say, hey, you're awesome, send you deals, work with your startup, maybe, I don't know, send you... A, a cute little card or something. We'll start. We'll start with the left and go right. Um, Clara, uh, Twitter. I'm always on there. Just send me a message. It's uh, Clara underscore Brenner. And Dennis, where's the best place for you? So everybody should immediately go to X.AI and sign up for a trial. Outside of that, I'm uh, Dennis Mortensen all over the internet, so I'm easy to find. Pratik. Yeah, uh, you can find everything about me on uh, pratikj.com. My Twitter, LinkedIn, email, you go for it. So I'm always available, very responsive. So, yeah. And Mr. Zach. LinkedIn. LinkedIn. And of course, guys, we'll have links to everything in the show notes. If you guys want to follow me on Twitter, it's it's Matt Ward. Someone else stole Matt Ward, so I really couldn't get a good one. I had to go with quite a corny one. If you're interested in more great roundtables like this where we get superstars on, They talk through 
pretty high level topics. Our last one was cryptocurrency. Our next one, consumer tech. We're going to have James Allworth and Tim O'Reilly on. Then go to thesyndicate.vc. Get in there, subscribe, join, listen to the podcast. We've got a pretty interesting one with Zach. He's a very smart guy. We might have to get a couple of the others as well. And uh, yeah, thanks for tuning in. Hopefully this has been helpful. Thanks for submitting the questions. And again, thesyndicate.vc. Go check us out, say hey, and yeah, reach out to everybody that's been here. Say thanks for coming on because they did an awesome job. They totally didn't get paid. I couldn't even give them coffee. This is totally remote, but eventually we'll meet in the future. Thanks. Bye. Cheers. Thanks, guys. Yeah, Bye have there. a great day. Cheers. Thanks for listening to The Syndicate, the podcast where angel investors and VCs go off the cuff and discuss the ins and outs of the venture ecosystem. We're here to share the tips and tricks of the best in the business because startups and tech make the pie bigger. To learn more about us and what we do, visit thesyndicate.vc. And to join our syndicate on AngelList, just go to thesyndicate.vc slash join and get access to some of the best startup deals. This has been another episode of The Syndicate. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you guys again next week.